You likely heard in the news an open letter from Surrey teachers was written to Dr. Bonnie Henry. And just a short time ago, the vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association joined Mike Smith to talk a little bit about some of the concerns. Some kids in Surrey are taking blended programs, so they're doing some of their learning online or remotely. But the kids, the teachers who are in the classrooms are teaching full classes. So that's 26, 27, 28, 20, 30, 31 kids every day. So there's an exposure to human beings in relatively small rooms every day for the teachers who are working in the schools. So that was Julia McRae, first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Joining me now is Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School District Superintendent. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. No worries. Happy to be here. What is your response to this letter that was written to Dr. Bonnie Henry saying the message was pretty clear from teachers saying we don't feel safe? Yeah, well, I I mean, one, I think it's important that teachers' voices be heard. And, uh, you know, we live in a democracy where we get to speak to the people in power. And I think a a letter to Dr. Henry is, is what they felt was in order. So good for them. Uh, has anything changed that you know of then since school started up again? I mean, there were concerns there as well. We've talked to a couple of teachers. We talked to one teacher who was in the hospital with COVID-19 and has recovered. But has anything changed as far as dealing with the concerns around safety? Yeah, I think that the biggest changes that we've seen as far as things we need to do or continue to do uh, stronger are around just how how strictly we are implementing the protocols. Like twice we've partnered with uh, with Fraser Health and our, our union partners have joined us around doing a deep dive into schools, having an, an basically an environmental assessment team go into a school, spend a day in a school, walk through, see exactly what it looks like, how it's unfolding. And the results of those assessments have been really good around just realizing how strict the protocols are and how how tricky it is to implement them across the board. Things, everything from classroom configurations to coffee machines to staff room seating to you know the way people sign in at school. There's a there's a lot in the protocols, and I think we can always be vigilant around to what extent are we actually fully implementing the protocols. Uh, Julia McRae uh, told Mike Smith as well, uh, and this was in the letter also. They're once again asking for a mask mandate, saying a lot of people are wearing masks in schools. They would like it to be a provincial mandate. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, and of course that's in the hands of of Dr. Bonnie Henry. But like my thoughts on that are trying to implement again the guidelines that are there. Like right now it says masks should be worn for secondary students all the time when you're outside of your classroom, when you're in the halls, when you're cross cohort. Same thing for teachers. Um, We also have asked our staff in our elementary school, our teachers to wear masks whenever they're outside their classroom in hallways and around. So just being vigilant on the mask protocols as they stand is is a task. And I, I encourage all people to adhere to the guidelines and follow it. Uh, so do you think that if people did follow those guidelines, would that be enough in, in light of not getting a mask mandate? Uh, I think it's a package, you know, you, you can't take, at least my viewpoint is, you can't take one of the protocols and separate it out. It is this hierarchy and they should all be put together. So I don't think, you know, personally, you know, a mask mandate in absence of the other protocols being followed um, adequately is going to be insufficient. Like you need to have the whole suite in order to keep this thing at bay.
What about the numbers of students? One of the other issues brought up and it was mentioned in that clip of Julia McRae saying that, yes, there are students who are doing a mixture of distanced online learning, but there are students as well that are in classes. And that means that teachers all day long are teaching full classes. They're asking for a 50 percent density in classrooms. Is that something that could even be done? Uh, well, we would look for the government for their support to do that. Like we're under um, um, the mandate from the Ministry of Education around the stages of learning and what they want in our current stage is as many students in school face to face as possible. So we all across the province had to submit our plans in August to get approval. Um, what we know in Surrey is, you know, overall, we have a very large number of cases, right, about 11,000 by my count overall since uh, sort of the fall and in schools we've had 548 instances where someone has reported that they've been positive while in school so we still believe these are community cases coming into schools and the amount of transmission we're seeing in schools is very small so if the government felt there was a need to go to reduce class size then they would but uh, as it stands they're not they're not asking that uh, we know of at least one teacher that was in the ICU. Uh, Julia mm-hmm. McRae talked about they know of two teachers that ha- have, have had COVID-19. Uh, it's impossible to say exactly where they got it from what exposure. Do you know of any other cases of teachers having this coronavirus? Yes, for sure. I mean, there's definitely been more than two. Um, I don't have numbers right in front of me, but there's no no question we've had a number of, of adults in our system, I'll say teachers and support staff and administrators um, who have tested positive and, uh, and a number of students, of course, as well. And again, you know, you're looking at 11,000 cases in, in Surrey overall and, uh, you know, even active cases right now, probably around six or 7,000 so it's just here. It's it's where we live. It's where we work. And so people are going to have it. You know, one of the key pieces for us is making sure that when people don't ha- or when people have symptoms, that they don't come to school uh, at all when they're, they're they feel they have systems. And, yeah, 7000 active cases in Surrey right now. Right. Oh, sorry, in Fraser Health. In Fraser Health. Uh, when you say more than two, we're talking about teachers, support staff, admin. Do you Do you have an idea on how many? I, I don't, and I'm, I'm not trying to dodge the question. I just don't have it right sure. in front of me. Like, it certainly would be, like, well beyond a dozen. Like, you know, we're, there's a lot of COVID in, in Fraser Health, and we've had a number of adults test positive, that's for sure. And the protocols, I would imagine, taking place then as soon as uh, they're identified as a case, uh, the isolation and the quarantining and that kind of thing? Yeah, and that's what I mean by these these response forms, which are a really important indicator for us. So anytime anyone tests positive then what they do is they report to their principal and they say, hey, I've, I've received a positive, I've been positive while, while I've been at work. And so we've had 500, and, or sorry, at work or school. So we've had 548 of those this year. And so, but each one of those doesn't translate necessary to an exposure because, you know, were they infectious with when they were at school and things like that. But it's a good indicator for us around the total number of cases that we that we believe have been in school since the beginning of the year. Uh, so what do you th- see things looking like then? We're getting close uh, to going on the, the Christmas break. Do you think there will be any changes? Or like you said, is it looking at the numbers with the number of exposures, cases, uh, the vast number of people, do you think things are working? Uh, I think they are. I mean, I'm, I believe they're working. We're seeing a stabilization in the numbers. But as we're all acutely aware that now we're looking at things like 500 being a good number, whereas, you know, in September that would probably cause us to have, you know, minor heart palpitations. But 
uh, I see the flattening of the cases. And I really, what I hope is over the winter break that people follow the protocols in, in our community and what's in place. And so when we come back in uh, to school in January, we're not dealing with a number of new cases as a result of people not following the orders over the winter break. Are you concerned about that, that two-week incubation period, if people don't follow the rules and what could happen then? Uh, you know, generally around me, I believe people are following the orders pretty well. Uh, it's always a concern, you know, around what, what people will do over the break. But I think when we saw Diwali in Surrey, which is a huge deal, the, the cases didn't go through the roof. We saw in our community numerous um you know, responsibilities put in place and the cases didn't go through the roof. So I'm hoping the same over the winter break. All right. Uh, Jordan Tinney, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, you take care. Thanks very much. You too. That is Jordan Tinney. He is the Surrey School District Superintendent. We wanted to take a look at what's happening in some other parts of the world as more restrictions are coming in to certain countries as they continue battling COVID-19. So let's check in with Shane Woodford, who is a freelance journalist based in Denmark, used to work right here at CKNW. Shane, good to chat with you again. Good to talk to you too, Joe. Uh, what is happening there? I know you've been sharing on social media. Uh, well, first, of all, before we get into the restrictions and what it's going to look like, how are the numbers there? The numbers are pretty brutal for Denmark. We have seen, uh, including today, we had the highest daily number of new infections, about 3,600 and change today, the most ever. Uh, we have gone up over the last three weeks pretty steadily. I mean, a month, month and a half, two months ago, uh, it would have been rare to see a day of three or four or five hundred, and now we have escalated very quickly past a thousand, past two thousand, and now uh, we're kind of towing just under four thousand. So the situation here is not good. Uh, the health minister, the prime minister, others in press conferences over the last few weeks have constantly used languages like it's very serious, it's very concerning. They keep talking about exponential growth. And Allah, today we begin another, a second national lockdown here in Denmark. And what does that mean then as far as when are things going to start closing down and what is closing down? Yeah, pretty much everything outside of non-essential businesses is going to close down. It's going to sort of move in very quick phases. So uh, first thing tomorrow morning, uh, all big department stores, all big box stores have to close uh, as of Christmas Day, virtually everything else will be closed. Uh, physiotherapists, hairdressers, movie theaters, uh, swimming pools are already closed. Um, it's going to be everything shut down until at least the first week of January. And then we'll have to see what the situation is. So basically, it's going to be uh, pharmacies and grocery stores and not much else open after that. Hmm. And so and what I'm gathering, too, and as you just mentioned, so essential retail stores are closing from December 25th on. So they'll still be there's still a bit of time. Where are we at right now? The 16th uh, until those closures yeah. come into place. Yeah, so we're going to have big box stores. All the really big stores will close tomorrow. On Monday, we'll see another wave of closures. And then by Christmas Day, everything will be closed outside of, uh, of, uh, of the essential stuff. So, you know, your, pharmac- your pharmacies, your grocery stores, that kind of thing, which won't hurt too much at first because Denmark generally sort of shuts down for a week over Christmas to New Year's anyway. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens first thing in the new year. And a lot of it, too, is just the psychological aspect of here in Denmark, Christmas, the Christmas season starting December 1st is a really magical time. The whole country just goes like all in on Christmas. It is, I mean, it's just really, really awesome month to be in Denmark and everything has been canceled. And so from a sort of a cultural and a psychological perspective, over and above the usual sort of 
invisible threat of Corona that's hanging over us all. Danes are really taking the, the sort of, you know, the stealing of Christmas away from them really, really hard. And it's a pale shadow of what we normally experience here in Denmark. In B.C. yesterday, the premier here uh, reiterated that there are consequences for people who don't adhere to the rules and that uh, there will be collections going after people who are fined, who don't pay the fines. So what is compliance like in Denmark? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Uh, they, they create a bunch of rules and uh, they have, you know, heavy fines to back them up. Uh, here in Denmark, the situation is a little bit different in the fact that uh, we have a public that has a very high level of social trust. And so you don't see a lot of the pushback that I see happening in Canada and in the United States. You know, when we instituted a uh, mask mandate back in September here, Jill, it was, you know, 99.9% of the public just went, okay, I'm going to wear a mask. And there was a couple, like I'm talking a handful of people who decided not to wear a mask on a bus or on a train. And they got handed some really, really hefty fines. It would have been in the hundreds of dollars of, uh, in Canadian terms. Uh, but by and large, these are a very, very tiny percentage of the people. And it's and most Danes uh, have a pretty good head on their shoulders. Uh, they trust that the government is working in their best interest. And when they say, okay, we need you to do this, by and large, most of the country goes, okay, that makes sense. It makes everybody safer. It makes me safer. I'm going to do that. Uh, what about concerns uh, about the economic impact? Yeah, well, huge. Um, the part of the of the press conference today from the prime minister uh, said that, yeah, this is going to cause a pretty major economic uh, upheaval in the country. I mean, on top of all the other ones that I know you guys have suffered in Canada and all over the world as Corona upends everything. So um, there's going to be an economic uh, cost to all this. Uh, so the parties will begin negotiations in the Danish parliament tonight and they will work out um, a series of aid packages that will likely be announced in the next week or two, and uh, we'll see what they do to kind of bail people out. But in the past, I mean, they've already instituted um, covering off, you know, the lion's share of, of wages and salaries for laid-off workers, all that kind of stuff that they, you know, they instituted in the spring, and now they've reinstituted here already as the second lockdown comes in. Uh, and do you get any sense from people, uh, even anecdotally, a lot of people I think now are comparing this type of approach where countries are going into second lockdowns or we're seeing these uh, new restrictions and and going back and forth, comparing it to something like what was done in Australia, that really hard, uh, what was it, 120 days uh, lockdown and now mm-hmm. kind of that celebratory tone of getting rid of the virus. Uh, do, do you, are you Are you getting any feeling that people would have preferred that or are wondering if this was the best way? Way of doing it yeah you know that has been the really interesting part here in denmark if you remember back in the spring when when covid first you know came came rolling down on us i mean denmark made national headlines for how fast they locked down i mean they closed their borders they closed everything in the space of 48 hours we had one of the strictest and fastest lockdowns out of any country in the world and it's really interesting to see sort of the paradox here in this in the fall where the government really has struck a tone of we want to do everything we can to try and avoid a lockdown. And they've, you know, they've twice now tried to do targeted local restrictions. OK, we got an outbreak in Copenhagen, so we're going to do some really very Copenhagen things to try and control it. Oh, no, it's out of Copenhagen. So we're going to expand those to the other cities and try and hammer it down that way. And then last week they folded their hand and said, OK, we've got to really, you know, start to broaden this. And then through the space of a week, it went from large part of Denmark to national. So it's been really interesting to see how, A, fast they came down and brought the hammer down in the spring, 
and how really, really reticent they were to bring down the hammer in the fall. And perhaps they should have, if they would have acted, you know, sooner, two or three weeks ago, um, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. And I think the most concerning, Jill, is the amount of hospital admissions we've seen here. I, I was looking at, at the numbers of that. Was it a, a 70% increase? That's, oh, sorry, that's healthcare workers who have tested pos- yeah. uh, positive and, and the fact that it is spreading in hospital. Yeah, so there's two things there, uh, a really sort of uh, jaw-dropping number from uh, Denmark's health minister in a press conference today, Mountain Heineke, saying that last week, 1,808 healthcare workers tested positive. This is a 70% increase week over week from any number they've seen before. And on top of that, we are now literally within a, you know, a couple of figures away from, you know, exceeding peak hospital admissions that we saw in the spring, which is concerning. And uh, we're going to pass for sure. We're going to pass the first wave peak hospital admissions. You know, if we haven't already, we just haven't seen the number yet. We will within the next 48 hours is my guess. And then, you know, that's the concern. If you remember back to, you know, what we saw in Italy in the spring, uh, what happens when a hospital system becomes overwhelmed and people get tired and they're sick, they're quarantined, they're dying. Uh, there's not enough beds. That's when things can get really, really, really nasty. Well, Shane, uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk to you again about this uh, soon, I'm sure. But thanks so much for your time today and for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure to chat. You guys stay safe, too. All right. Uh, Thanks so much. That is Shane Woodford, freelance journalist now based in Denmark. Some researchers at SFU have been talking to young adults. It's a pretty wide group age-wise, between the age of 18 and 40, asking them about whether or not they feel included when it comes to public health messaging during this pandemic and how they feel about blaming and shaming. A lot of that, as we know, done on social media. Well, one of the researchers who has taken part in this is Scott Lear, who is an SFU health sciences professor, also the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at St. Paul. Hospital and Scott Lear joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot, Joe. Uh, so this research looks at 50 young adults uh, from around BC asking about their experience uh, with COVID-19 with with a couple of things, I guess. One, uh, what's been the impact of the virus and also kind of uh, the blame that's going around. Let's start with the impact. What kinds of things did you learn? Yeah, is there some very interesting things and challenges that uh, people in this age, age group are having. And people are, are in different situations. Like some find the challenges of online learning, those in, in university. But a big one for across the board were financial challenges. Uh, a lot of the people in this age group are working jobs that uh, they may be front line, like retail or in service industry restaurant. And they're also jobs that don't um, pay uh, benefits if there's sick leave uh, as well. So some, some uh, people are, are mentioning that challenge of, you know, putting their health concerns versus their, their financial concerns, uh, as well as uh, a number mentioned that even though we have the government benefits, some are finding it hard to, to, qu- to qualify um, for these benefits. And then um, a few of the older uh, participants, those with children, uh, again, mentioned what we've heard before um, with parents with small children, that, it, that it's challenging to work um, 
while having um, their children um, either at, at home more often or just dealing with the stress of the situation in general. And looking at the group of people that were questioned and that offered up their their experiences, the the age range of 18 to 40, uh, it's a pretty big range in that I would imagine in a lot of cases there's an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old whose experience is very different from a 36-year-old or a 40-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Most of the people that um, we were talking to were in the... um, in, the, in their 20s, but there were a couple of people who, who had children who participated who, who were older. So, so yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It's, there's, there's quite a lot of difference. And even somebody from eight, 18 who's first year in university to somebody who's 24, 25, um, maybe completed that degree and is, is working as, as well. So, yeah, we, tried to, we targeted this group because we felt that this was probably the, the group that... Um, is being impacted by the restrictions, but not necessarily like seeing a lot of um, how I say, like direct individual concerns from the virus itself. Right. I would imagine, too, and I don't know if the questions got into this, we are focusing a lot on long-term care, and obviously that's where we're seeing deaths, we're seeing such isolation, and, and we're seeing the virus really hitting that community. Uh, but do, do you think that there, did, did you get the impression from people that you questioned in this younger group uh, that they, too, are, are dealing with isolation or they're dealing with the mental health challenges that maybe aren't getting uh, enough attention? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's a really good point, and that did come through. Uh, a lot of these people, they might be living on their own or living with roommates, and, and more than one of them expects challenges of living with roommates who may not uh, see eye to eye on how to deal or how to abide by the public health measures, and that created some, that created stress uh, as well as that. Uh, isolation when they might have a roommate who's going out and uh, in, in that person's mind maybe being more kind of frivolous with the public health measures and then coming home and they're sharing that space. But the isolation too, because a lot of people in these uh, age group um, are living independently, but they might be living alone or only living with one or two people. They're not part of, of family. So that social isolation where they normally, you know, not care about living in a small place on their own because they're always going out, meeting with friends and and working in school and so forth. That's being cut off a lot for them. So the social isolation was was also a big thing that was mentioned. Uh, and that you touched on something there too that I think has come up as far as the messaging in that we've been talking a lot about uh, the restrictions, the current restrictions we have in the province right now. Uh, there does seem to be a lot of blame kind of cast on that group. Uh, when we talk, uh, we hear stories about people uh, hosting parties and getting tickets or people going to restaurants and, and uh, not following the rules, uh, getting up from a table and hugging before going their separate ways. Uh, d- did you get into uh, how, because you're right, there's a scenario that you just talked about, uh, roommates, where rum- one roommate might not be following the rules, one is, but they both get blamed. Yeah, and so that was also what came up. Like, So in the groups that of people we interviewed, they, they seemed also very concerned about um, public health measures, trying to uh, do things like follow the public health measures, but also support uh, small businesses in the local economy. And they would see that 
um, other people in our age group might be doing things, whether on Instagram and so forth, but they also express this as a minority of people. This isn't, they didn't feel that that was uh, justifiably representative of all the people in that age group. Which makes sense. I think we're going to have, uh, it, it would make sense that even if it's not scientific data, we would know that there are going to be people in every age group probably that aren't following the rules and people that are following the rules. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, that blame or the, the kind of uh, the face almost of this has become the younger person. Yeah, and, and interesting, like the, the restrictions that, that we have, so um, to, to kind of uh, make it sound kind of uh, interesting, is that basically we're, we're, we're staying at home, and, you know, some people would say, oh, you're just going to, to watch Netflix or, or binge watch TV or stuff. And for certain age groups, like uh, where you have families at home and stuff and maybe older kids, that's kind of what a lot of people in certain age groups we're doing already, you know, like in that 50-year age group and above the areas, whereas it's a lot, uh, there's a, a lot of desire to socialize and grow, especially in that early 20s age group, and that's being cut off. So uh, in terms of, like, the financial burden and the social burden, um, this age group is, is probably feeling it a lot more than some of the other age groups. Is there the sense, though, that, that yes, it is it is completely different and we can all remember being in our 20s and, and appreciate how important the social aspect is in the social life, but also uh, the bigger reason, it's not like people are being asked to stop socializing and to stay at home on a whim. People are doing this because we want to stop this virus and we want to potentially save lives by this b- this behavior. Is there a, Was there any talk of kind of the trade-off or the understanding on why these things are happening? Yeah, there seemed to be uh, some definitely under understanding on trying to, to keep safe, keep the, the community safe. It, it did come forth that it's, it's challenging for people in that age group to kind of be the blamed and shamed or the, the scapegoat for why cases are, are increasing when they're, they're doing what they feel is their best and also going through this challenging time. And... It also came across that the public health messaging doesn't really talk to them directly, and they didn't see their voice represented in, in the public health messaging or acknowledgement of how the restrictions might be affecting them. And, and at the end of the day, they were, just like all of us, wanted their voice to be heard. And so a lot of them, after we did interviews, emailed us of their own accord saying, Thank you so much for for listening to to our opinion, and it actually was very, um, almost you might call it like therapeutic or satisfying for for the for them to to share. And we're working to get that message out so that the public health message be more appropriate also for this age group as well. And Scott, just before I let you go, uh, talking about getting that messaging out, social media is a big part of that. Uh, I understand that there's a, a campaign now to try and push that. Yeah. So. A colleague of, of mine at UBC and I, we've put together, based out of these interviews, uh, put together a social media competition or contest. So we started an Instagram account called At Home for Holidays BC, and we're asking people either to send like their TikTok videos, tag us, their memes, or pictures on how to be COVID safe for the holidays. 
And the purpose of doing that is twofold. One, to get this, this uh, group of young adults being active, informing the public messaging, but also having it to target that same age group so it can support their friends and their peers to maintain and adhere to the public health message over this crucial time of the holidays when we might be more inclined to kind of be a bit more lax or slack off. And Scott, I understand that if people take part in this, they can also win some Amazon gift cards. Yes, definitely. We've got prizes for first, second, and third, and then we've got an overall draw prize uh, for a $100 Amazon gift card. And all they have to do is do their video or picture on their own account, tag us, use the hashtag home for holidays bc and then we'll repost it on our instagram account and you'll automatically be entered into that competition in the draw all right it's always nice to have uh, the incentive of a gift possibility uh, we'll leave it there for today thank you so much for joining us thanks a lot Jill. That is Scott Lear, the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at SFU Health Sciences, also a professor there. Well, it took a really long time. I think we can all agree it took way longer than it should have. But Victoria and the municipalities around Victoria are no longer flushing untreated sewage into the ocean. And many, many people are pleased to hear that news and have been fighting for this for many years. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Joel Connolly, a uh, retired but still very much engaged Seattle Post intelligencer, columnist and reporter. Joel, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. My pleasure. Uh, You've been writing about this for how many years? I started writing about it in March of 1991 when the first Gulf War was raging in the Middle East. And when you go back to when you first started writing about this, how big of an issue was it as far as uh, comments that you would get and, and people that would, that would reach out to you or respond to, to your writing? It became an instantly big issue, particularly with resentment on our side of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, where cities had already indulged secondary sewage treatment and did not treat well to the argument coming from the Capital Regional District that the solution to pollution was dilution. <laughs> Uh, and in your um, your post alley uh, where you still write, uh, one of the lines I think that sums it up quite well, it says uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca is no longer a toilet. Now, one of the situations was that one of the chief defenders of the status quo, your environment minister, David Anderson, kept talking about the flushing in the strait and, um, and basically described the Strait of Juan de Fuca as a toilet, but then could not understand why people were upset at what he had to say. When when you look back at, at this as well, and there were times when, uh, I mean, it's it's been in the news, and uh, Vaughn Palmer, who's a columnist with the Vancouver Sun, uh, mentioned again this morning, Mr. Floaty. Uh, you've written about Mr. Floaty. I mean, it shouldn't really be a badge of honor that a city and a province that prides itself on this natural beauty, uh, the, the icon, the mascot in Victoria, was Mr. Floaty. Um, he certainly had a talent for bad puns. He certainly had a nose for publicity trying to run for mayor of Victoria. 
And as I recall, during one of your provincial elections, Mr. Floaty tried to attend but was not allowed in to a Victoria Beacon Hill Candidates Night meeting. <laughs> yeah, I almost he almost made it in uh, to that meeting. Uh, what do you remember most about, there have been attempts to make this happen. Uh, it's It's been a project that's been in the works for many, many years as far as sewage treatment. Uh, do you do you remember or do you think that there was more effort or more hope that this was going to happen back when we had the 2010 Olympics here? I think the 2010 Olympics uh, broke the ice, so to speak, uh, particularly when Gordon Campbell, your premier, recognized that this was a smirch in the image of the province and um, and said as much. At the same time, however, there was an ancient rule that was applied here. Hell hath no beer of fury like a bureaucracy defending itself. <laughs> and the CRD, the Capital Regional District, dug in its heels still, and it took a long time, particularly with the Squamalt resisting the treatment plant, to uh, to get it cited and to get it under construction. Uh, there were still such moments as when your Premier Christy Clark uh, blew off our governor Jay Inslee when he tried to uh, tried to raise this issue. Inslee and Premier Horgan get on very very well. They're both one-time high school jocks who never really changed, so that's uh, and they are certainly aligned on uh, issues of maintaining the water quality in the Salish Sea. And my guess is that that people living on the U.S. side don't really care too much about the fact that the project was over budget. The project got sidelined a couple of times. That that all, I mean, it happens. People have to deal with that. But at the the end of the day, people on both sides of the border just wanted the the city of Victoria and surrounding area to stop putting sewage into the ocean. That's certainly the case. We had something which I would describe as a miracle and is still hard to believe, but the San Juan County Republican Party actually passed an environmental resolution calling for Victoria to stop. And if the um, if the upset about the sewage dumping reached even the Republicans of San Juan County, I think it indicates a pretty, pretty universal feeling that this had to stop. Uh, do you, is it surprising to you that it didn't create more tension between the governor in, in Washington and politicians on this side of the border? There were occasional uh, tension, um, tension, such as when Inslee received a uh, form letter from then-Environment Minister Mary Pollack, but at the same time, there are an awful lot of irons in the fire. Notably, Inslee and Horgan are hot on the idea of a high-speed rail connection, um, enormous amount of commerce. The um, Blaine border crossings are among the uh, the most trafficked in a 4,000-mile frontier. And uh, generally, the fact that we uh, occupy a corner of the world that is not yet used up or remember British Columbia's wonderful nickname in Canada, Lotus Land. <laughs> and I, I know uh, Governor Inslee, uh, I think it was the video that was released uh, just yesterday, uh, quipped or, or made, made mention of the fact that uh, the water looked so much cleaner in front of uh, his house, uh, kind of uh, getting, I think, a bit of a dig in as to how long it took. He lives down on Bainbridge Island, which is a long way from Victoria, but nonetheless... Um, Hyperbole is what politicians live on. Did you ever think that you would spend so much of your career, such a long period of time, writing about this? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, again, I likened in my lead, I likened this to Europe's 30 years' war, that this has lasted 
longer than uh, longer than many great historic battles. At the same time, however, I've watched British Columbia get uh, more and more engaged in preserving and protecting lotus land. Uh, note, for instance, that one other consequence of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics was that the mining industry was driven off in its effort to uh, uh, eviscerate a beautiful provincial park up in the Chilcotin Mountains north of Whistler. So anyway, um, the environment now has clout, and remember Vancouver Island has it as the two Green Party members of your legislature, and as I recall, one of the, uh, well, both of the um, Green Party MPs. So this is uh, this is again uh, increased its place on your radar screen as well as ours. Uh, because really, even though there is a border that cuts uh, right through, uh, anybody that's been on the Canada side, the U.S. side, uh, I think can agree that it's a beautiful landscape. It's very similar on both sides of the border, and uh, why wouldn't you want to keep it clean? One of my favorite places in the world is Turn Point on Stewart Island in the San Juans, which looks directly across at Vancouver Island, has sunsets to die for and orca whale sightings and so on. And uh, if there anything ever happened in those waters, the spill would not turn back at the, uh, the border in the middle of uh, Harrow Strait. So this is essentially an environment shared uh, shared by the two con- countries. The orca whales are shared by the two countries. Um, we depend upon your restraint in fishing for our coho salmon to survive. You sometimes need us to uh, pull back when the early Stewart salmon run on the Fraser River is hit by, high, hit by warm water. We are each other's keepers. And I know you continue to write uh, on uh, your website. So what will you write about now that uh, the sewage treatment plant uh, at a, cr- a price of, I think, $775 million, albeit Canadian dollars, uh, is up and running and uh, that's been dealt with? Well, put it this way, when you let me back into uh, British Columbia, I will be uh, headed up to Night Inlet or to Kootsamateen to watch grizzly bears um, feed and I will be writing about that. I'm sorry to miss the current exhibit at the Royal British Columbia Museum. I ribbed your health minister, Adrian Dix, a bit in a Facebook post about not being able to go there, and he replied by offering to send me a booklet on the exhibit. (laughs) Not quite the same thing. Nope. (laughs) All right. Well, Joel, we all look forward to that day where we can freely go back and forth across the border. Again, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate your time. Have a good one. You too. Joel Connolly, he is a retired Seattle Post-Intelligencer columnist and reporter. Uh, He has been writing about the sewage treatment, uh, the lack of sewage treatment uh, coming from the Capital District, uh, Vancouver Island, Victoria area for more than 30 years. And uh, that is the big news. The plant is now up and running. The last polar bear swim that took place in English Bay, thousands of people on the beach. It was the global news story and people braving the water seven degrees and plunging into the icy waters of English Bay on January 1st. As we know, that is not going to look the same this year either. But uh, an interesting idea has been put forward for people. If you still want to participate and do some kind of polar bear swim to keep that tradition going, there is an idea to take it online. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Lisa Pantages, the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim President. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us. 
I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I I think it's one of those events where some things translate online a little easier than others. But uh, being creative, uh, what types of uh, suggestions are you giving people uh, as far as still being able to do a polar bear swim? You know, anybody who's ever been down to the polar bear swim knows that there's a lot of creativity there. (laughs) And I think that any of the polar bears will come up with something unique to them. Um, We're suggesting anything that involves some sort of a dip which actually does have a bit of history in the polar bear swim from my grandfather. And um, in any way they want to do it, in any form of costume, or if they just want to keep it simple and stick their feet in their house-side creek or get into their bathtub or um, dump a bucket of icy water over their head. I mean, I think there's a lot more creative ways than that to do it. I'm personally going to be in my fish pond. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and are you going to adjust the temperature to make sure it's it's uh, similar to English Bay? <laughs> I adjusted the temperature yesterday, and it's actually a balmy five degrees Ooh. right now. So it's actually maybe cooler than what the um, ocean temperature could be. <laughs> wow. Uh, you mentioned your grandfather and uh, Peter Pantages, who started this in 1920, uh, along with, I think, nine other swimmers. So how many times have you done the swim? Well, uh, I am 58 years old. This will be my 59th swim because the first time I went in, I was about three months old. (laughs) And you remember it like it was yesterday. Oh, yes, I sure do. And I wasn't traumatized at all. No, (laughs) Not not really, if you're you're still doing it all these years later. (laughs) You know what? I really do love it. I love the feeling of camaraderie. I love the tradition. I love that Vancouver has such a long-running tradition. It's amazing to see all the familiar faces every year down at the beach. It's like a bit of a reunion. And it's sad that we have to adapt it this year, but it's ever so important that we do. So um, I think we'll all be able to have good fun this year and reunite yes next year. Uh, because uh, the numbers, I think, what was it, 40,000 people came out to watch, uh, not 40,000 people brave enough to go into the water, but more than 7,000 people uh, registered as swimmers uh, last time. So that, that obviously is something that we won't be able to do, not even close this year. Not even close. Last, last year, it was uh, an amazing event. Um, this year, we really need people to stay home. And um, I, I know personally, I'm very sad about that, but I'm happy to do my part to keep our community safe. Now, are you encouraging people then, if you say, take a dip, you put ice water in the bath or put ice, make the water in your bathtub cool or your fish pond like you're doing or a kiddie pool? Are you encouraging people to make videos and to share them? We are. We'd love them to upload their videos. Um, You'll be getting uh, a certificate similar to the certificate that we got last year. And also, if you upload your video, then you're guaranteed to get one of the traditional buttons, which people love to have because it's a great symbol of their swims. And those buttons have been going on since the early 70s. So there's there's quite a pack of polar bears who have lots and lots and lots of buttons. So um, that's the way that you would receive your buttons. And am I remembering correctly, is there, was there a component where you could bring something for the food bank? There was. And um, as of yet, I'm not quite sure how we're going to add that piece in. Um, but it, all of the information will be on our webpage if anybody would like to donate to the food bank this year. Right, because I'm, I'm just thinking that that was such a, a, a way for people. I mean, they probably would have thought of it. Oh, polar bear swim, grab this or take something for the food bank. So hopefully people are still thinking of other ways uh, if they were going to give uh, to get that, to, to get the donations, because exactly. obviously it won't be happening in person. Um, I, I seem to have noticed this year, I, I think maybe it's because the rec centers were closed or because of distancing and the pandemic. Uh, and this is completely 
completely anecdotal, but only because I walk my dogs uh, through and, and I'm at, I tend to go to beaches a lot. Mm-hmm. More people have been swimming in and the people were swimming right into October and November and not in wetsuits. They were braving the waters and it seemed like there were a lot of really brave swimmers this year. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's a component that's that's catching on. People are realizing the actual health benefits of cold water swimming, and um, that's something my grandfather swore by. He he swam every day of his life, and um, that's really how the polar bear swim came about. Um, in fact, the reason we came up with this idea of the dip is because uh, even when he went on his honeymoon, um, he would only travel on a certain cruise line because um, they would allow him to dive overboard into the ocean every day on his way to his honeymoon destination. Um, and that's really how Vancouver caught the attention of kind of uh, North American media and became what it is today. I had no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yep. And oh, and the, the element of the dip in that is that if for some reason the captain deemed it unsafe for him to dive overboard, they would draw, a, the chief purser would draw a cooled bath down to the temperature of the ocean and he would lie in it for 20 minutes to half an hour and then get a signed letter from the Pacific Steamship Line saying that that's the only reason he wasn't in the ocean that day. Wow. And what were the health benefits or what was the reasoning that he felt it was important and to go for a cold water swim every day? Well, aside from peace of mind, I think it's very good for any sort of inflammatory um, um, inflammatory situations people might have. Um, it's a, a great peacemaker in your heart. Um, and also, I think for us polar bears, even the ones who only do it once a year, you get this incredible sense um, enthusiasm in you it's you you get this little bit of adrenaline rush that makes you so proud that you've accomplished this and I think that that's a big health component also so do you do you only do the polar bear swim though or do you cold water swim as well I don't cold water swim every day but I'm a big advocate of it and I usually swim up till well this year I swim until the end of October regularly um and every once in a while on a nice day I'll sneak down and jump in the ocean uh during now and then I usually get back in around March but uh I have to admit I haven't I haven't braved past uh uh, January 1st till about March. <laughs> <laughs> which which is interesting, too, because the temperature of the water doesn't change all that much. It's it's what you're dealing with on, the, on when you're back on land, I would imagine. It doesn't. I think it just tends to be the rainier days. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't have the fortitude of my grandfather, I guess. I don't know. But sometimes it's really hard on a rainy day to go down to the ocean for a nice cold dip. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can get that. I understand that. Um, so where can people, do people still have to register or what should they do if they still want to take part in this very uh, different model of the polar bear swim? All of the information is on the Parks Board Polar Bear Swim uh, webpage. Everything that you need to know will be there. I believe that registration will be up and running as of December the 21st. I believe the webpage will be fully up today, but I haven't actually had a chance to confirm that yet. Um, so everything they need to know is there, and we're trying to make it as easy as possible for everybody. And we really hope that people participate this way, because I think looking back, it'll be a really interesting way to montage um, the new the new steps of 2021. And we'll be able to look back in 2022 and see um, how much fun we had trying to participate this way. All right. Sounds like it's going to be uh, an interesting one. That's for sure. Uh, Lisa Pantages, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much and happy cold water swimming.
Thank you so much. Could you let's see if you can get a video up there too? Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for that. That is Lisa Pantages, uh, the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim President. I only said it like that because I now I feel like I should do it. And every time I am at the dog beach or at the beaches, I see people swimming, and I think, oh, they're so brave. And clearly, there is something that the that they love and they get from this. But I have not been brave enough to hurl myself into the ocean. I do in the summer. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not I'm not as brave as Lisa going in at March. I think the earliest I've gone in is June. So that's not really that brave at all. But maybe this year. All right. Challenge accepted. Well, we know this has been a very challenging year to say the least. But here's some good news. The Sage and Sparrow Conservation Site in BC in the interior is growing. That's because of the purchase of some new land surrounding the area. And our show contributor, John Jang, has all of the details and joins us now. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. The words beautiful British Columbia is well known to pretty much all of us, right? I mean, come on, it's on license plates across the province when you're stuck in traffic. All you see is beautiful British Columbia. Well, look, as of yesterday, you can now personally experience the meaning of beautiful BC thanks to an announcement from the National Conservancy of Canada. Now, for more on that, we're joined by Barb Price. She is the Southern Interior Program Director and the lead on this new project. And Barb, uh, some big news. In fact, some really big news, as we've learned that a massive purchase was just made to expand one of your sites just outside of a Soyuz. That's right. Well, thank you for uh, your interest, John, and letting us talk about this uh, wonderful project. That's quite right. We were able to uh, conserve another 311 acres in a very important landscape here in the South Okanagan, uh, working with private landowners to uh, purchase their property. So, yes, we're very excited about this incredible uh, addition to conservation here. As I was hinting, that is a big chunk of land that is going to be put to good use. So explain to us why it was so important to acquire these large swaths of land and to expand the conservation site that was already in place. Right. So this is an expansion project to the existing Sage and Sparrow Conservation Area. And that area has been uh, under creation since 2012. We This is now the fifth landowner that we've worked with down there and so you know we take the approach that bigger is better connectivity is really important for um, habitat protection for all kinds of animals and and ecosystems and so the this particular piece is a is one of the keystone pieces in that mosaic in that we're creating now a north-south conservation corridor from the U.S. border all the way uh, north of Highway 3, uh, just west of uh, Soyuz. And we've also added to the east-west connectivity in that uh, area as well. Now, this is more than just a beautiful spot in BC's backyard. It's key to the protection of endangered plants and animals in that area of the world. So could you clarify on that a little bit? Because whenever we use the words endangered, uh, people are keen to learn more on what they can do to help out. Absolutely. Well, the the South Okanagan is actually one of Canada's uh, most endangered ecosystems. And uh, there's many reasons for that. One is uh, that it's sort of the northern tip of this very 
special ecosystem and there are many plants and animals that occur here and nowhere else in Canada. And so that's one reason that this area is of keen interest to the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Additionally, grasslands, which do form a part of this uh, mosaic of conservation areas, are a really tiny part of the landscape in British Columbia. About 1% of the grasslands in BC, um, or 1% of the, the land base in British Columbia, are grasslands. And yet over 30% of species at risk call grasslands um, their home for all or part of their life cycle. That is a significant number. So obviously, the more the merrier, as you were elaborating on earlier. Now, this is more than just a project for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. This is something that can impact everybody listening because you can actually go and visit and check out the site for yourself as long as you follow the rules. Exactly, yes. We want people to love nature. We want people out there enjoying nature the plants, animals, birds, you know, all aspects of nature, as we know, is so important for our physical and and mental well-being. And our conservation area is open to the public for walk-in access. And uh, we, you know, they are sensitive ecosystems. And so we just uh, ask people to walk in, walk out, and love nature and all that it uh, holds for us. Now, I'm wondering, is that available right away, or is there a bit of a waiting period until things are fully operational? There, there isn't a waiting period, but the, the road access into that area is uh, <laughs> it's going to be, uh, come challenging very quickly here through the winter. The, the roads in aren't maintained um, or anything like that, but, you know, I would encourage people to get out there next spring when you know, the earth is coming back to life after uh, its winter sleep. Yeah, unless you've got winter tires and you've got a very capable 4x4, maybe some off-road experience, you may want to wait until some of that snow and ice melts away for good in the new year. But this is great. Uh, Personally, you know, I have friends in the East Kootenai. I've got family in the Canmore area. So maybe, you know, next spring or summer when I make plans to go and visit them, I can stop by and check out this new site for myself. Excellent. Is it possible for me to uh, just make a comment that, you know, the Nature Conservancy of Canada cannot do this work alone. We've had uh, tremendous support from a wide variety of, of funders, including the Government of Canada through the Natural Heritage Conservation Program, uh, the Regional District of the Okanagan Similkameen and the South Okanagan Conservation Fund, We've uh, had support from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Sitka Foundation, Okanagan Similkameen Park Society, Oliver Soyuz Naturalist Club, South Okanagan Naturalist Club, and many individual donors. So that just tells us again how meaningful this uh, work is to so many people in this incredible landscape. It takes an entire network of people to make something like this happen. So I'm glad to see uh, the community is being rewarded for their efforts here. She is Barb Price, the Southern Interior Program Director with the National Conservancy of Canada. Barb, thank you for your time here today. Thank you, John. All right. uh, uh, Thanks to our show contributor, John Jang, for bringing us uh, that story.